Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club and Wonderfest event. I'm Tucker Hyatt, Executive Director of Wonderfest, the Bay Area Beacon of Science. It is my pleasure to introduce Sean Carroll, theoretical physicist and author of The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, Space, Time, and Motion. Dr. Carroll is the Homewood Professor of Natural Philosophy at Johns Hopkins University and fractal faculty member at the Santa Fe Institute. He also hosts the podcast Mindscape. Dr. Carroll earned his PhD in astronomy from Harvard University. His research is focused on issues related to dark matter, dark energy, space-time symmetries, and the origin of the universe. He has been recognized with prestigious fellowships, fellowships and prizes from the National Science Foundation, NASA, the American Institute of Physics, and the Royal Society. Before we get started, I'd like to encourage our audience to please submit any questions for Dr. Carroll through the chat on YouTube. We will be getting to your questions after Dr. Carroll's presentation. Dr. Carroll, Sean, you asked me to call you. Welcome back to the Commonwealth Club. Thanks very much for having me here, Tucker. I'll say goodbye for now. Great. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, let me share my screen right away here so you can see what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the secrets of Einstein's equation. Now, I will admit this is the publication day for our book, uh, The Biggest Ideas in the Universe. This is the very first time I have given the talk you're about to hear. And I've decided to throw caution to the wind and be ambitious and experimental. Uh, obviously, there's too many big ideas in the universe for me to talk about all of them. So I want to focus on one idea Einstein's equation. And you might get the wrong impression from that title. So because you probably, when you're told Einstein's equation in your mind, you might think about E equals MC squared, right? This is the famous equation that goes along with Einstein as iconic things about the 20th century and the 20th century in physics. But to physicists, to professional physicists, this is not what we call Einstein's equation. E equals mc squared is important. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. In particular, the energy of a stationary object is equal to its mass times the speed of light squared. Very, very important for physics, and Einstein would have become famous just for that. But what he actually is famous for among physicists is this equation. This is the Einstein field equation for general relativity. It relates the curvature of space-time to the amount of matter and energy in the universe. And if I were to read it out loud, it's r mu nu minus one-half r g mu nu equals 8 pi g t mu nu. So my goal in the next 50 minutes is to explain this equation to you, including the Greek letters, the subscripts, and everything. And this usually isn't done, I have to admit. You might be told that gravity is the curvature of space-time, but you're not told about the equations. And the whole ambition of my book is to say that the equations are not inaccessible. Anybody can learn them, even starting from zero background knowledge. It's more about fortitude than it is about prerequisites. So my advice, if you are thinking that, you know, these equations are scary, you're not quite sure what to do with them, is to suck it up. You can do it. I believe in you. And I'm going to try to do my best over the next 15 minutes to really help you understand what this equation really means. So the theme of book one in the three book series that will eventually be the biggest ideas in the universe is classical mechanics. This is the story of physics from Aristotle through Newton all the way up to Einstein. Quantum mechanics changes things in interesting ways starting in the 1900s, but classical mechanics was ruling the roost before then. And the most famous equation, an important equation in classical mechanics, is F equals MA. This is called Newton's second law of motion. The, the first law is just an unforced object, just moves in a straight line at a constant velocity, the second law says if you push something, how does it respond? And the answer is it accelerates and in a way that is proportional to – well, the acceleration is proportional to one over the mass. The force is proportional to the acceleration. So there's a lot of things that are really great about this equation. This equation is not that scary. I mean, it has fewer symbols in it than E equals MC squared, right? One thing, the force, is proportional 
do another thing, the acceleration. And what's great about it is, first off, it is precise, by which we mean this is not simply a suggestion. This is not simply saying that if you increase the force a little bit, the acceleration will also increase a little bit. This is a rigorous quantitative relationship. It says that if you double the force that you push on something with, the acceleration will double. And if you increase it by three times, it will increase by three times. That's what you need to do important quantitative things like flying a rocket to the moon. The second important thing is that this equation is universal. It's not just saying this particular time you act a force on something, it will accelerate in this way. It says every time you act a force on an object with a certain mass, it will accelerate in exactly this way. So that's why the equations matter, because they're unforgiving, they're rigorous, they're precise, and they apply everywhere. They're also tricky because there's notation involved, there's ideas involved. If you look closely at this equation, F equals MA, you will notice there are little arrows over F and A. What's going on with that? What's going on is these are vectors. These are not just numbers. We live in a world of three-dimensional space. And so when you exert a force on an object, that force could be in many different directions. That's okay. Mathematicians know how to deal with that. They assign a vector to the quantity rather than just a number. That is to say, a little arrow that has both a directionality to it and a length. The length of the force vector is the amount of force you're acting. The direction is the direction in which it's moving. And it's very, very convenient to divide that up into what we call components. If you imagine out there in space, you put coordinates, right? X, Y, and Z. Or if you're in a city, it could be north, south, east, west, and up, down. That would be an example of a coordinate system that you could use here on Earth. And then what you can do is just say, for whatever vector you like, you can ask how much of the vector is in the X direction, how much is in the Y direction, how much is in the Z direction. Those are the components of the vector. And that gives us another way to write the equation. Rather than writing F arrow, which is the vector as a whole, equals A times M times A arrow, we can write F sub I equals M times A sub I. Because really, this is three equations. There's one equation for the X component. The force in the X direction is mass times the acceleration in the X direction. Another one for the Y component. Another one for the Z component. So you begin to see the miracle of compact notation. One little symbol is really telling you three different equations. Now, this equation is at the center of all of classical physics, but it's no good unless I tell you what the force is, right? Force equals mass times acceleration, but... What is the force? So here's Isaac Newton, who invented classical mechanics in the first place, to give you one example of a force, namely the force due to gravity. This is Newton's famous inverse square law. If you have two objects, the force between them goes in the direction of the separation between them, and it goes down as the distance increases, as one over the distance squared. So here's the equation for force for the gravitational force, F equals G capital M little m over R squared times E, where E is a unit vector. That means it points from the little object to the big one with a unit length. It's not telling you how big the force is. It's just telling you what direction it goes in. How big the force is, is being governed by Newton's constant of gravity, capital G, the mass of the big object and the mass of little object divided by the distance squared. So with these two equations together, F equals MA and this particular equation for the force, you can put them together. And you find something remarkable right away. And this is why equations are great. You can discover things that are precise and maybe unexpected. You say F equals MA and F equals GMM over R squared times E. The little m's, that is to say the mass of the object that is being pulled by gravity, they cancel out. They appear in exactly the same way on the left and the right-hand sides. So you can just X them out and you get a simpler equation an equation for the acceleration due to gravity, the acceleration of any object in a gravitational field caused by a big mass capital M is G capital M over R squared. It doesn't matter what the mass of the little object is. So here's an Apollo 15 astronaut. This is a painting because they took photographs of it, but the photographs weren't very good. But the Apollo 15 astronauts actually did this. They dropped a hammer and a feather on the moon where there's no air resistance, and you see them fall at the same rate. In our everyday experience, we see hammers and, and, arrow, and 
feathers fall at very different rates, but that's only because of air resistance. The actual gravitational acceleration is the same. And I bring this up both to sort of warm you up to manipulate equations a little bit, but also because this illustrates a crucially important feature of gravity, namely that gravity is universal. Gravity doesn't care what you are made of, how much mass you have, or whatever. Every object is pushed around in the same way by the force of gravity. Other forces aren't like that. The electrical force or the nuclear forces care a lot about what you are made of, but gravity does not. Keep that in mind as we go forward. We're going to go forward a lot. This is the 1600s when Newton was thinking about these things. We're going to skip over to 1905 when Albert Einstein is putting the finishing touches on the special theory of relativity. The special theory of relativity was actually inspired by previous work in the 1800s. And it's fair to say that in a very real sense, Einstein didn't initiate the theory of special relativity. He basically almost completed it. He's the one who really pulled out the rug from this idea there was an ether pervading all of space and said there's a better way to think about the fundamental rules of motion in the world. Number one, motion is relative, not absolute. So if two objects are moving past each other, you can't say what the velocity of either one of them is full stop. There's no universal standard of rest, but you can say what the relative velocity of two things is. That's relativity. And the second idea is that the speed of light is constant for everybody. That's the much more radical idea. If you measure a light beam coming at you, you measure its velocity, 300,000 kilometers per second. But then if you move toward the light beam and you measure its velocity again, you get the same answer. It doesn't matter what you're doing. That's very strange, and it's hard to wrap your mind around how that works. It was Einstein's genius to explain how it works. And there's a whole bunch of ideas that go along with that stemming from those two ideas, time dilation, length contraction, and so forth. It can all become a bit overwhelming, but it's also kind of fun. And I said that Einstein almost finished, almost put the capstone on special relativity, but there was one more step to be taken. And interestingly, it was taken a couple of years later by Hermann Minkowski, who was previously Einstein's professor back at university. And unlike Einstein, who was a physicist, Minkowski was a mathematician. And he had this insight that all of these ideas that Einstein had, you could actually simplify them and make them conceptually more coherent if you thought of it as taking space and time and combining them into one thing called space-time. So we live in space, three-dimensional space, up, down, left, right, forward, backward. We also locate ourselves in time. If you want to meet somebody for dinner, you have to say where you're going to meet them in space and also when you're going to meet them in time. So you could have talked about space-time whenever you wanted to. Isaac Newton could have talked about space-time if he wanted to, but there was no reason to do that because space and time had separate existences. What Minkowski is pointing out is that mathematically, the rules of special relativity come down to saying that basically there's only space-time and different observers will divide it differently into space and into time. It's all a matter of the underlying geometry of space-time. So his famous quote says, henceforth space by itself and time by itself are doomed to fade away into mere shadows, and only a kind of union of the two will preserve an independent reality. One person who was not impressed by this move was Albert Einstein, who thought that Minkowski's formulation made rather great demands on the reader in its mathematical aspects. In other words, Einstein was thinking, this is just mathematicians showing off. I'm a physicist. I want to understand how things work. I'm not that interested in these fancy formulas and formalisms that you're trying to put forward. He was wrong. Einstein was wrong in that particular case. He'd be a convert to the space-time way of thinking soon enough. And let me explain why the word geometry is so important here. Why did Minkowski think of this special relativity as a matter for geometry? Well, think about the length of a curve in space. If you have a distance between two points, you've been told the distance is, uh, the shortest distance path is a straight line, and you can calculate what that distance is using a famous formula called Pythagoras' theorem. If you draw your straight line, as in the figure on the left, in a set of coordinates, x and y, then the distance along that line squared is 
the is x squared plus y squared. That's Pythagoras's theorem. And that's what you would measure if you walked along that path. So we portrayed a person with a little pedometer counting their steps. If you know how long your steps are, you know how long you've walked. You're measuring the distance as you move along the path. All of that is just so obvious and clear. It's almost not worth saying. But Minkowski's point is time is also like that. Time is a measure of interval within space-time. And there is a similar formula to Pythagoras's that you can use to measure the elapsed time that you would count along your clock, along your wristwatch. But there is a slight subtle difference, and this is why the geometry of space-time is a little bit tricky, that there the what we call tau, the Greek letter tau. You can't see me. I'm pointing to the, the screen here, but you can't see that. How about this? There's the Greek letter tau. This is supposed to be the quantity that you measure on your clock. And we have to distinguish that from T, which is a coordinate on space-time. So everyone in the world agrees on T. T is the measure of what time it is. Is it 5 p.m.? Is it 6 p.m.? Whatever. And Minkowski says that's different from tau, which is the elapsed time that you personally would measure. And the way it goes is tau squared is T squared minus X squared. So it's kind of like Pythagoras's theorem, but there's a sneaky minus sign that gets in there. And what that means is Pythagoras implies the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Minkowski implies that the longest time between two events is a straight line. If you zip back and forth along a path as you travel from one point in space-time to another, you accumulate more and more X, more and more traveling through space. And that takes away from your proper time, from the time that you would personally measure. This is the origin of the twin paradox and all those other things you hear about in special relativity. If you move close to the speed of light, according to special relativity, you will experience less time than if you just sit at home. And you can think of it in this elegant geometric way. Very nice. Let's keep that in mind too. So what we're keeping in mind is time is a measure of distance in space-time and gravity is universal. Both of these thoughts were on the mind of this fellow, Albert Einstein, because as soon as he had put together special relativity in 1905, he knew that there was something that was missing. What was missing was the force of gravity. Back in the 1600s, when Isaac Newton presented classical mechanics, the very first thing he did was show how the force of gravity works, to show how you can understand how planets move around the sun in ellipses and understand their motion and so forth. Whereas relativity was put together to play nicely with Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism from the 1800s. And it sort of wasn't compatible anymore with Isaac Newton's theory of gravity. But obviously, gravity exists, so you have to reconcile gravity with relativity. And this is the task that Einstein set himself to in the decade after 1905 in special relativity. And he went back and forth. He had lots of ideas. He wasn't the only one thinking about this idea. The breakthrough was a thought experiment. This is what Einstein was better than anybody at in just thinking his way to the fundamental essence of a problem. He thought about that fact that gravity is universal, right? If you drop two objects, no matter what they're made of, no matter what their masses are, they will fall at the same rate. And the way that he thought about it was, well, imagine you're in a room sealed off from the outside world. You drop two objects and you say, ah, gravity, because I drop two objects and they fall. But if that room was put on a rocket ship and the rocket ship is blasting through interstellar space, nowhere near a gravitational field, you drop two objects and they would also fall. And they would also fall at the same rate. But it's really because of the acceleration of your rocket, not because of the force of gravity. What Einstein proposed is it's not just a special feature of falling objects, that in fact there is no experiment you could do in that sealed room or in that rocket that could distinguish between a gravitational field and simply accelerating. Again, this is not like other forces of nature. If you wanted to know, is there an electric field in the room? No problem. And a, a positively charged particle like a proton and a negatively charged particle like an electron move in opposite directions if there is an electric field. If the electric field is zero, they don't move at all. Whereas everything acts in the same way according to gravity. So this led Einstein to a super speculative idea. He said, 
I don't think that gravity is a force at all. I don't think that gravity is something that lives on top of space-time. I bet that gravity is a feature of space-time. That's why it's universal, because it's not something extra on top of space and time. It is a characteristic of the features of space-time itself. In fact, in particular, it is the curvature the geometry of space-time in the spirit of what Minkowski said about special relativity. The problem is Minkowski's proposal on special relativity, even though it's a sort of statement about the geometry, is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. The geometry is not curved. It's just an update of good old Pythagoras' theorem. Whereas what Einstein was proposing was curved geometry, and mathematically that's much harder And Einstein, in 1908 or whatever, didn't know anything about curved geometries, and it was actually not that even, not that old a subject. It was really worked out in the 1850s. So he had to go to a friend. He fortunately had a good friend from his university days, Marcel Grossman, who was a mathematician who was an expert in the geometry of curved space-time. And and Albert said to Marcel, could you help me out? Could you tutor me in this curved geometry stuff? And Grossman said, sure. That's why one of the major general relativity meetings to this day is called the Marcel Grossman meeting. Without him, it wouldn't have been Einstein who did the work. Now, long story short, there is Euclidean geometry and non-Euclidean geometry. Euclidean geometry is what you learned in high school. It's the geometry of the tabletop. It's the geometry of a flat surface. And what you might have heard is that there was a little bit of controversy going back to Euclid's day about something called the parallel postulate. The parallel postulate says if you start with a little line segment and you send out two lines at right angles, so they're initially parallel, Euclid postulated that they would remain at the same distance forever. That makes perfect sense. It sort of matches what our intuition would tell us on a tabletop or in three-dimensional flat space. Parallel lines stay parallel forever. It seemed so basic that for literally hundreds of years, mathematicians tried to prove it. They tried to show that it wasn't an axiom or a postulate at all. You could prove it as a theorem from more basic axioms. It turns out they failed, and they failed for a very good reason, namely that you can't prove it. And the reason you can't prove it is because it doesn't have to be true. In the 1830s, a bunch of mathematicians, Lobachevsky, Bolyai, Gauss, all realized that you could change the parallel postulate into something else. You could imagine saying, well, start with a little line segment, send out initially parallel lines. Maybe they go further apart from each other. That is like the geometric surface of a potato chip or of a saddle. It is what we would now call a negatively curved geometry. And likewise, you could imagine a geometry where from an initially straight line, two right angles come out as parallel lines, but they end up converging, coming together. Like on the equator of a sphere, two initially parallel lines of longitude will intersect at the North Pole or the South Pole. So what this means is... Euclidean geometry isn't the only way to go. Euclidean geometry is a specific example of a way that geometry could be. It's flat geometry with no curvature at all. But there's other options where there is curvature. And these 1830s explorations were similar to Euclidean geometry in that they were constant. They were uniform. There's the same amount of curvature at every point on the sphere or on the potato chip, just like there is always zero curvature everywhere in flat Euclidean space. So it fell to this guy, Bernard Riemann, who was studying for his extra advanced degree in Germany, and Gauss, who is one of the most famous mathematicians of all time. Gauss was his thesis advisor, And Riemann asked him what he should work on for his thesis, and Gauss gave him this problem of the foundations of geometry. And Riemann didn't really like the idea, but he, you know, you have to do what your advisor tells you. This is something that graduate students learn one way or the other. And so he ended up addressing the problem of what if there is curvature in a space, but the curvature is not uniform, if it's not constant, it's not the same everywhere or in every direction. And furthermore, can we characterize the curvature from the inside? And can we do so, he was very ambitious, can we do so in any number of dimensions? So if you look at these pictures that we drew here, they're all two-dimensional surfaces in one way or the other. Riemann says any number of dimensions any amount of curvature in any direction. 
Okay, that's very, very ambitious. And I won't give you his entire reasoning, but what he suggested is the, the question he had to address was, what is the information you need to give me about a space, about some either space or space time or whatever you want to call it, that would let me extract all of the geometric information? What is the minimal amount of info, the minimal amount of data I need to know? And what he figured out was what you need to know is how to calculate the length of a curve. So here's a curve in some space, okay? And Riemann was a smart guy. He'd already made a lot of contributions to mathematics. So he knew that the trick was to learn, was to use calculus. And if you buy the book, The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, you will be taught the basic ideas of calculus in a very painless, user-friendly kind of way. Riemann knew that the fact that the curve is curved didn't matter. All you had to do was zoom in on the curve, and calculus teaches us that if you zoom in on something enough, no matter how curvy it was, it begins to look straight, okay? So a straight segment in a three-dimensional space, for example, has a very natural way of calculating its length. It's just Pythagoras' theorem souped up to three dimensions. D squared is X squared plus Y squared plus Z squared rather than just X squared plus Y squared. That wasn't very hard. People had known that for a long time. Minkowski would come along a few years later and say the very similar thing happens in space time. The time that you measure on your clock is T squared minus X squared minus Y squared minus Z squared. So what Riemann is saying is that these formulas, if you knew that formula at every point in space or an analogous formula, it might not be quite so simple, a generalization of this kind of idea at every point in space would tell you everything you need to know about the geometry. This is all what Grossman had to teach Albert Einstein. So this is the one part. The next two slides is where it gets a little abstract. Bear with me here a little bit, okay? So what Riemann says is, in, in general, look, look at what's happening here. You have the distance squared is x squared, y squared, z squared. Time squared is t squared, x squared, y squared with some minus signs. So what you're doing is you're calculating interval squared, and you're doing it by adding up some coordinates squared. Or in general, if you have some weird coordinates, it might be one coordinate times another, like x times y, okay? And then you multiply them by some number, plus one, minus one, something like that. And that's what Riemann put together. He said, for to calculate the square of this interval you're doing, whether it's space or time, doesn't matter. You add up some number times one of the coordinates times the other coordinate, and you do that for every one of the coordinates, every pair of the coordinates. And the interval could be distance or time, depending on whether you're in space or space-time. So the general formula looks a little bit unwieldy, but it's some number times t squared in space-time plus another number times t times x, c, another number times t times y, something times t times z, and then you start over with x times t, x squared, x times y, etc. Every pair of coordinates times some number. And just to make our lives more complicated, these numbers can change from place to place. They're really functions of where you are in space, okay? These parameters, a, b, c, d, e, etc., these will change from point to point, okay? You can see that this is not only abstract and intimidating, but it gets unwieldy. Like these letters, A, B, C, D, if, what if you're in a 20-dimensional space? Then you need 20 squared letters, and you're, you don't have that many. So mathematicians, of course, are very good at inventing slick notation to deal with these issues. So they say, let's take all of the coordinates, T, X, Y, Z. Let's give them numbers, X0, X1, X2, X3. Okay, why does T, the time coordinate, get a zero? Well, because sometimes you want to talk about two-dimensional space-time, three-dimensional space-time, four-dimensional space-time. There can be different numbers of dimensions of space, but there's always one dimension of time. So it's just safer to put it as the zeroth coordinate. And we invent the letter, the Greek letters, to act as an index on these coordinates. Remember when we did F equals MA? And we said we could write it as coordinates, F sub I equals M times A sub I. We were using the Roman letter I to go over one, two, three, X, Y, Z. Now we're using the Greek letter mu to go over zero, one, two, three, T, X, Y, Z, all the coordinates on space-time. 
And the nice thing about this notation x mu is that you don't need to use good old familiar perpendicular Cartesian coordinates, right? X, Y, and Z. You could use polar coordinates or elliptical coordinates or any other weird coordinates. Once we get to really curved space times, we're going to have to use coordinate systems you've never heard of before. That's just part of the game. But what this does, what this nice little move does, is it gives us a way of portraying all of these numbers that we need to keep track of to encode the curvature of a space, the geometry of a space, a la Riemann. So what Riemann told us is the interval will be some number times t squared, another number times tx, another number times ty, add them all up. So t is x0. So the number multiplying t squared, we will label g00. t is x0 and x is x1. So the number multiplying tx is g01. g02 multiplies ty, g03 multiplies tz, and you see the pattern. It goes over all the coordinates. And then we have a bunch of numbers, right? We have four times four equals 16 numbers, and they're all labeled G, mu, nu. The mu's and the nu's are just indices that go over zero to three. G, zero, zero multiplies T squared, etc. Depending on what street corners you hang out on, you may have heard this sort of mystical incantation before. G, mu, nu. G, mu, nu is the metric tensor. It's the collection of numbers that multiply the coordinates that help us calculate distances in an arbitrarily curved manifold in an arbitrary number of dimensions. It encodes everything we need to know about the geometry. So let's bring it down to earth a little bit with a, with a very simple example, one that we already know, Minkowski space-time, right? In Minkowski space-time, the intervals we care about are the amount of time elapsed on a clock. And the formula for it is t squared minus x squared minus y squared minus z squared. So in the metric tensor way of thinking, that's a matrix, as we say, it is a four by four array of numbers, g, t, t, g, t, x, etc. Or if you like, g, 0, 0, g, 0, 1, g, 0, 2, it doesn't matter whether you use the letters or the numbers, as long as you keep your wits about you, okay? And in this particular example, for Minkowski space-time, the coefficient of t squared is just plus one. There it is. The coefficient of x squared is minus one. That's gxx is minus one. Gyy is minus one. Gzz is minus one. And all of these weird cross terms are just zero. There's nothing in this formula here that has x times y, for example. There could be. There could be for other kinds of space-times and curvatures, but not in Minkowski space. So you kind of see, maybe you kind of see why this is a convenient way of thinking. By bundling all these numbers up into this array and then just labeling it G mu nu, we can keep track of all that information. Riemann is telling us we need an enormous amount of information to calculate the lengths of curves in an arbitrary space or space-time. But here we've bottled it up in a relatively compact form. And we can even kind of interpret what this square array of quantities is telling us. The spatial parts, gxx, gxy, etc., those just let us calculate distances in space like we know and love. The time one, gtt, what is that telling us? It's relating tau, which is the time elapsed on a clock, to t, which is the time coordinate. So this component of the metric, GTT, which in this simple case is just plus one, in general, what it will be telling us is the rate at which time flows, the rate at which our clock ticks with respect to some background time coordinate. It's a little dangerous to say the rate at which time flows because the time coordinate, we just made it up. It could be anything, but that's what it really technically means. The rate of flow of our clock versus the time coordinate in the background. And then we also have these off-diagonal things mixing up space and time. What are they about? Well, they have a real physical relationship to when time and space twist into each other. And you might say, well, I've never seen time and space twist into each other. That's because mostly you live in Minkowski space-time, and they don't. You notice there's no components up here corresponding to GTX, GTY, GTZ. Those are zero for the Minkowski metric, right? But there are other metrics where they're not zero, and those are kind of fun, namely the metric around a spinning black hole. 
You've all seen this picture. This is from the movie Interstellar. And this is not just an artist's impression. I mean, it is. It's not a photograph either. But the artist worked very hard with my colleague, my former colleague, Kip Thorne at Caltech and other physicists to really understand the motion of light in the background of a spinning black hole. And a spinning black hole has non-zero components that mix time and space together. That's the twisting of time and space due to the spin of the black hole. So in principle, all of these different parts of a metric might be important for more complicated, subtle space-time geometries. For good old special relativity, for Minkowski space-time, it's all very simple, and we can actually keep track of what's going on. Okay, what has that been telling us now? We have the metric. Riemann promises us that the metric is all we need to talk about the geometry of a manifold. But what Einstein says is that what matters is not the metric, not for gravity. What matters is the curvature of the space that we're in. So how do we calculate the curvature? Riemann also tells us that. He didn't actually complete this task, but other people followed up his work and figured out how to do this. And so what one way of thinking about it, there's different ways of thinking about it, but let's go back to the parallel postulate, right? Euclid says, if you start with a line segment and you send out two initially perpendicular lines, they will remain parallel to each other. But Lobachevsky and Bolyai and Gauss said, well, maybe they will converge or diverge. And Riemann says, actually, they can converge or diverge and they might converge if they move this way. But if you shoot off the initially parallel lines in some other direction, maybe they diverge and maybe they twist around as they do it. So in fact, you need an enormous amount of information to characterize the geometry of some twisty, curvy space or manifold, as we call it in math speak. There's a lot going on when it comes to curvature. So what we want to know in general is at any point, here's a point, we can draw any little line segment we want. And in two dimensions, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of freedom there. There's just one angle. But in three dimensions, there's lots of little line segments we can draw through any point. And we want to be in four-dimensional space-time or more. So you've got to give me a lot of information just to pick out the initial line segment. And then from that initial line segment, we send out two perpendicular lines. Again, in two dimensions, there's not a lot of choice there. But in three or more dimensions, there's a lot of different ways we could orient those initial perpendicular lines. And then we have a whole set of ways that they could either move apart, move together, twist in some direction, or whatever. Clearly, we need to compactly keep track of a whole bunch of information. And it turns out that what you need is a tensor. The tensor is just, you know, this generalization of a vector. You know, the force vector had three components you could write in a column. The metric tensor was two indices, g, mu, nu. So that is both a column and a row. It looked like a little square array. The Riemann curvature tensor is r lambda rho mu nu. That has four indices. So that is four by four by four by four sets of components, okay? And if you want to see what it would, might look like if you wrote out all the components, here you go. <laughs> this is the Riemann curvature tensor written as a four by four matrix of four by four matrices. Again, four times four times four times four different components. This is just silly. This is just showing off, showing you this kind of uh, picture, just to say that it's much easier to keep in mind the Greek letters, R, lambda, sigma, mu, nu, than it is to keep in mind this whole giant array of things. Now, if you are a professor who teaches general relativity, you used to have an infinite supply of homework problems right on your desk because you would just ask your students to calculate the Riemann curvature tensor. It depends on the metric. Once you give me the metric, there's a formula for calculating the Riemann curvature tensor, and they would have to calculate all of these components. These days, that's no more fun anymore because you can just ask a computer to do it, and it's very, very effective. So these days, we can do it very slickly. But 100 years ago, you had to do it by hand. Okay. That's the hard part of the of the talk right there, okay? That is going from arbitrary geometry to curvature. You need the metric to talk about distances along curves. You need the Riemann curvature tensor to talk about all the different ways that curves can twist and bend and move toward each other and move away from each other. Now we want to put it to work. Now is the fun part. That was the hard part. That was eating our vegetables. Now we get to put it to work to do gravity. 
So go back to Newton's way of doing gravity. Remember, he had this equation where the force was equal to mass times acceleration in general and was equal to GMM over R squared for gravity in particular. The little m's cancel. So at the end of the day, Newton has an equation for the acceleration due to gravity, which is proportional to the mass of the object causing the gravitational field. In our new context, in Einstein's vision, we don't have either one of those things. We don't talk in terms of acceleration or in terms of mass. Relativity speaks a different language. So what we want to do is replace the idea of acceleration somehow with the idea of the curvature of space-time, some quantity that depends on how space and time curve together. Likewise, we have another trouble on the right-hand side because Newton said that what causes gravity is mass, right? But we already know that mass is kind of subtle in relativity. E equals mc squared tells us that what mass really is is just one form of energy. So it's not going to be mass on the right-hand side of our new general relativity equation. It's going to be something more comprehensive. Guess what it's going to be? It's going to be a tensor, <laughs> and the tensor is called the energy-momentum tensor, or sometimes called the stress-energy tensor. Happily, it only has two indices, T, mu, nu, so it's just a little four-by-four four matrix. And again, we can attach physical meaning to all of these different components. The zero-zero component, the TT component, the component in the upper left is the mass or whatever other kind of energy is lurking there in the object. So for the most part, here in the solar system, where gravity is caused by the sun or the earth or the moon or whatever, it's this zero-zero component of the energy-momentum tensor is all that will matter. Everything else is kind of irrelevant. But for the universe, where you have radiation and you have dark energy and you have all these things, all these other bits of the energy-momentum tensor might very well become important. The diagonal components, the components TXX, TYY, TZZ, have a physical realization as pressure. The TXX is the pressure in the X direction, YY is pressure in the Y direction, and so forth. And then these off-diagonal elements where one direction is twisting into another one, these can be interpreted as momentum and heat flow in some direction and stress in an object and various other kinds of things. Again, we almost never need them. I'm just trying to be honest with you. My whole purpose here is to not hide anything from your attention. So the point is, in relativity, all these different ideas are unified together. Energy and mass and momentum and heat and pressure are not separate things. They're all part of one thing, and that one thing is called the energy-momentum tensor. That is the thing that will have to go on the right-hand side of our new equation for gravity, whatever that equation is going to be. We're, we're flattering ourselves here. We're pretending to be Einstein, trying to figure out what the new equation for gravity is supposed to be. So here's where he is, you know, in the in 1915. He says, we have a metric on space-time. That metric gives us the geometry by telling us the length of curves. And we can calculate from the metric the Riemann curvature tensor, which is really telling us about the curvature of space-time, the metric we use to calculate the curvature. And Einstein thinks it's curvature that is going to be gravity. And then we have matter and energy, which are characterized by the energy-momentum tensor, T mu nu. So to replace Newton's equation for gravity, we would apparently like an equation that has the Riemann tensor on the left for the curvature of space-time and the energy-momentum tensor on the right, representing stuff in the universe, mass, energy, what have you. Sadly, there's an obvious problem here. I mean, you might want to just set them equal to each other, but you can't. You can't because they have different numbers of indices. T mu nu is a 4 by 4 matrix. R lambda rho mu nu is a 4 by 4 matrix of 4 by 4 matrices. They're different kinds of things. They're different geometrical beasts. So this is where, you know, you get paid the big bucks to be a theoretical physicist. Is there some way we can squeeze out of the Riemann tensor some smaller tensor that we could set proportional to T mu nu? Obviously, in the way I'm saying this, I hope you understand the answer is going to be yes. There is a way to do this. Einstein figured out how to do it. I'm going to skip steps 
Time is short. I wrote a book. You can buy the book and it will explain what exactly is going on here. But what's going on here is that you can take the Riemann tensor with all of these indices and you can boil it down. You can compactify it. You can you can literally uh, contract it down to a smaller tensor called the Ricci tensor. And the Ricci tensor is obtained just by taking some components, the Riemann tensor, and keeping them, throwing others away in a principled way, not randomly. There's a formula for doing it, and there's a reason why that formula works. And then you can go further. You might say, wait a minute, the Ricci tensor, that looks kind of like I could just set it equal to the energy momentum tensor, right? And Einstein tried that, but it didn't work. If that were true, you could not have energy conserved in his theory. He didn't like that. So he kept going. You can also boil the Ricci tensor down to a single function of space-time called the curvature scalar. And then you can ask yourself, is there a way to manipulate all these different things, put them together in some way to set it equal to the energy momentum tensor and get a good equation for gravity? The answer is yes. You know the answer. I showed it to you on the second slide. This is Einstein's equation for general relativity. R mu nu minus one half R g mu nu is eight pi g t mu nu. So eight and pi, hopefully you've met them before. They're numbers. G is Newton's constant of gravity. We met that before in Newton's equation. T mu nu is the energy momentum tensor. It tells you the stuff that's in the universe. And then over on the left-hand side, a particular part of the Riemann curvature tensor that fits well, it plays nicely with the energy momentum tensor. This is Einstein's equation. This is what he became famous for. Now, he writes this down in 1915, and he immediately thinks, you know, he's the one who went through a lot of effort to figure out what was going on. He knew as well as anyone, this equation is a bear. This is really, really complicated. Here is one component of the Riemann tensor written out in terms of the metric tensor. Remember, I told you that the metric determined the Riemann tensor, but I didn't tell you what it was. Well, this is a formula for one component of the Riemann tensor. It's kind of a mess. Even though you can do it on a computer, it's still kind of a mess. So Einstein thinks, you know, no one is ever going to solve my equation. My equation is beautiful. I love it. But no one is going to find an exact solution. It's just too complicated. And then two years later, Carl Schwarzschild finds an exact solution to Einstein's equation. Schwarzschild was a German astrophysicist serving in the German army in World War One, And in between throwing artillery uh, across the front, he learned general relativity and solved Einstein's equation in a very particular, simple context empty space outside a planet or star, okay? So you see that this is the answer. This is the Schwarzschild metric, and this is why it's worth going through all this. This is why it's worth going through all this abstraction and notation and so forth. This is the payoff. We're not giving you analogies or waving hands or telling stories anymore. This is the geometry of space-time around the sun or around the earth. And it looks kind of similar to the Minkowski metric, right? There's a plus sign in front of this, minus sign in front of these. It's in polar coordinates rather than Cartesian coordinates, but who cares about that? What really matters are these two components, the G00 and G11 components. If you go far away, R is the distance from your object. At large R, when R is big, 2GM over R is small. And this is basically plus one here and minus one there. It's exactly the Minkowski metric. But what happens when you approach R is close to 2GM? Then it becomes one minus one, and this becomes close to zero. This guy becomes one over zero, which is infinity. That sounds bad. <laughs> so this is something that is lurking inside the Schwarzschild solution. Something interesting, weird, bizarre happens at R equals 2GM. In fact, we know what that zero, zero component of the metric is, right? We, we interpreted that physically before. It's the rate of passage of time on our clock. And as you approach R over 2GM goes to 2, this goes very, very close to 0, which means that if you hang out near that point in space-time, your clock will not tick very fast compared to clocks very, very far away. So if you fly near a black hole, hang out, and then come back, you will not have experienced too much time. If you want to see this in action, see Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar, where this exactly happens, and he comes back, he leaves the black hole, and his daughter is much older than he is. This is a real physical effect. That's a movie, but it really would happen. So I use the phrase black holes, but this is the point. 
Albert Einstein did not know anything about black holes. Carl Schwarzschild did not know anything about black holes. Einstein's equation knew about black holes. This is why the equations matter, because Einstein just wanted to figure out the motion of the planets in the solar system, things like that, the deflection of light, and it worked for that. But you solve the equations, and the equations are smarter than we are. The equations know things that we don't. Hidden inside Carl Schwarzschild's solution to Einstein's equation in 1915, 1917, is the idea of a black hole with an event horizon at R equals 2 GM, a region of space-time so curved that even light itself cannot escape, a region of one-way travel. You can check in, but you cannot check out. Again and again, the equations of physics are much smarter than we are. That's why they are worth learning. Today, 100 years after this story happened, we put Einstein's equation to work a lot, and we see it work. Here is an image around a black hole, the center of our galaxy. This is a map of dark matter from gravitational lensing. This is the Big Bang, gravitational waves, the growth of structure in the universe. All of these are based on this equation that Albert Einstein wrote down in 1915 without knowing about any of these phenomena. He didn't know about the Big Bang, gravitational waves, black holes, or any of those. The equations are smarter than we are. It's a testament both to nature, which follows patterns and never breaks them. Those patterns are called the laws of physics. But it's also a testament to human beings because we human beings, as tiny and as slow as we are, we can figure this stuff out. Albert Einstein figured it out. We're following in his footsteps. It's interesting to wonder what it is we will figure out next. Thank you very much. Wow, Sean, thank you. <laughs> Should uh, I stop screen sharing? Uh, it's up to you. I think you're, you're welcome to leave it on. Whatever you think will be helpful in answering questions. Sure, we'll leave it on. All right. As you might imagine, people have questions that are all over, I was going to say all over the world, I'll say all over the universe here. Um, Let's go big. First off here, is the universe, in your mind, is it, do you imagine that it's infinite and perhaps, or perhaps cyclic? You know, this is the, the, the ultimate question. You could imagine lots of things. You know, I have, um, I have a podcast called Mindscape, and every month I do an Ask Me Anything episode. And I very often get questions that begin with, is it possible that? <laughs> and my answer is always, yes, it's possible, because that's just how science works. You know, science doesn't prove things once and for all. Science is open to all possibilities. We can say that we're very, very, very skeptical of something, but we don't know for sure. So, about the large, large-scale structure of the universe, both in space and time, it's not just a matter of not being sure. We know nothing. We have no idea. I think it's very possible that time is eternal to both the past and the future, but it's also equally possible the universe had a beginning. And even in space, I think it's possible the universe is compact in space and finite, but it's also very possible that it's infinite. These are things that we not only don't know on the basis of data, we have no obvious way of checking right now. So we should keep an open mind. Great. Thank you. Is it fair to say that given the introduction, at least that you've just given us of your latest book, The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, that it is in a way an introduction to general relativity? Is that a fair characterization? I think that general relativity is the crowning achievement in the book. It's the payoff, like we said. Uh, most of the book is building slowly to that point. We talk about Aristotle and Newton and Hamilton and Laplace, and we work our way up to trying to understand space and time separately and together, different ways of thinking about classical mechanics. And then we do the geometry, the, you know, the metric and things like that. And then we get Einstein's equation and then we look at black holes. So it's the crowning achievement of classical mechanics, I would say, is general relativity. And that's how it's treated in the book. Great. Is it true that there are to be two more volumes in the biggest ideas uh, universe? The idea that you'll follow up with two more books? What will, what will that's, they do? That's very much the idea, yes. Uh, if all goes well, this time next year, we'll see the appearance of volume two, Quanta and Fields, where we'll talk about quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, particle physics, things like that. And then volume three will be complexity and emergence. So complex systems, thermodynamics, cosmology, the whole universe, all sorts of things that have more than just two or three moving parts. 
And the idea is that each of these volumes will be accessible to someone with, say, a background level of high school physics uh, scale. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about fortitude. <laughs> I will tell you everything you need to know, starting from no prior knowledge. And you have to be open. It's more about your spirit than your brain. You have to be willing to look at these funny looking symbols on the page and go, okay, I'm going to think about this. And if you're willing to do that, you can understand all of the things in the book. Great. Which one of the tensors that you just presented to us does involve the content of space-time, the, the massive objects? What, which is that? That's the energy-momentum tensor. tells you the mass, energy, what have you, yeah. And, and you've talked about a component of that, which is dark matter. I'm speaking now for a friend who wants to know what your current hypothesis is hypothesis is to the nature regarding the nature of dark matter. At one time, I guess you thought it was weakly interacting massive particles, wimps. Do you, do you still think that's true? Well, that's a great question, actually, because there's two separate things going on. One is, is there dark matter? I would argue that the evidence in favor of there being dark matter is overwhelmingly strong. It's almost not worth contemplating that it's not there. We have multiple lines of independent evidence, all of which tell us that dark matter is there, by which I mean some matter that is dark, but also matter that is not in anything we've ever discovered yet. It's no particle that we've ever made here on Earth. It's not in what we call the standard model of particle physics. It's something kind of new. But beyond that, we know it's there. We know how much of it there is. We even make little maps. I showed you a map at the very end there. Uh, we know how it's distributed. And we know that it's sort of slowly moving, things like that. It's cold, dark matter. But what the actual particle is, we literally have no idea other than those broad stroke characteristics. So for a long time, weakly interacting massive particles were the prohibitive favorite. They still might very well be the right answer, but the, the, the reality is we could have found them directly by now, and we haven't yet. Because they were the favorite, people put a lot of effort into looking for them, and they haven't seen them yet. And we might see them tomorrow, who knows? But the fact that we haven't found them yet dampens enthusiasm a little bit. There's another kind of particle called the axion, which is actually very, very promising that we haven't really tried very hard to find yet. So that's still very plausible. And who knows? You know, it's very, very easy to imagine there's something we haven't thought of yet. There's plenty of ways to make particles that are not easily visible to us. Thank you. In, in, in one of the tensors in the Einstein equation, you, there was a pressure was one of the factors, at least that's the word you used, and tension another. Often, I understand that dark energy is referred to as a kind of pressure. Is this a, are these different beasts or are we talking about the same sort of thing? No, that's exactly right. You know, I, I tried to be careful when you have a big, ponderous, slow-moving object like the Earth or the Sun, it's really only the energy density that matters. But as I said, in cosmology, the pressure and other things can also matter. So for dark energy in particular, the pressure is just as big as the energy density, but it's a negative pressure. It's a tension. If you had a box of dark energy, it would pull in on its sides rather than pushing them apart. And that's very, very important for fitting how the universe expands and accelerates. Is the choice of the word energy unfortunate, given that dark energy would not plug into Einstein's E equals MC squared and talk about something with inertia? I think dark energy is a tiny bit unfortunate because everything has energy <laughs> and lots of things are dark, right? So it's not it's not exactly pinpointing what's going on. I, I jokingly suggested that we call it smooth tension since pressure, negative pressure is a kind of tension, but that didn't catch on except as a joke. You know, that's okay. Who cares what the name is? We all know what it means. You You can't just think that from the label, you're instantly able to infer all the properties of a substance. All right, we have a question here that says, can't light move faster than the standard limit, little c, relative to something given that the universe is expanding? Well, there's a subtle question here. I mean, the short answer to that question is no. Light cannot move faster than the speed of light, no matter what. But it's a subtle question because in an expanding universe, whenever you say, you know, moving at the speed of light, you always have to say relative to what? The real rule in relativity is that two objects cannot pass by each other at a relative velocity faster than the speed of light. 
once your objects are far apart from each other, then there is in relativity no such thing as a well-defined velocity between them. So you can get an apparent velocity that comes from both the speed of light and the expansion of the universe that looks like it's greater than the speed of light. But relativity doesn't put any limits on that because it's not two things passing right by each other. All right. Thank you. Would you care to comment on a question you asked about Einstein's goal, uh, goal of a unified field theory? Is that, in fact, what people still seek today in trying to unite gravity and quantum mechanics? It is in some ways. You know, Einstein in his later years um, tried to unify gravity with electromagnetism in particular. He didn't know what we know now about the nuclear forces, the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. So the modern version of what he tried to do would be to try to unify gravity with all three of the other forces, electromagnetism and the two nuclear forces. People try to do that. And the, the name we would give to it now is a theory of everything. And superstring theory is the leading candidate for that. But there's there's been not a lot of progress in connecting superstring theory with experiment right now. So I think the, the jury is still out over whether or not that's the right approach. Do you hold out hope that those string theories, even superstring theories, might someday be testable or are they forever out beyond reach? Oh, no, sure. They're very plausibly testable, but we don't know. You know, no one ever promised us a rose garden when it came to figuring out the fundamental laws of physics. It's it's possible that string theory is both correct and won't be testable within our lifetimes. That's just something we have to live with. But we don't know. We might get evidence for it tomorrow. Uh, that's why we have to keep looking. You know, there's no rule that says it's going to be easy or there's no deadline. We just have to keep plugging would you tell us a little bit, I'm asking a question from the audience here, about your own background? That is, when you were quite young, what first engaged you in the study of, of first science in general and then physics in particular? Yeah, you know, I uh, got interested in this stuff very young. When I was about 10 years old, maybe, I started reading books about black holes and the Big Bang and quarks and leptons and particles. I don't know why. I started to do that. Clearly, I stumbled across one such book and got interested and then started going to the local public library and the Walden books in the mall near my house and you know, getting all the books I could on these subjects. I mean, I did not come from an academic family. No one in my circle of uh, acquaintances knew anything about going to graduate school, getting a PhD, being a professor or anything like that. So I sort of had to stumble my way into getting it done. And I don't recommend to people that they decide what they want to do for a living when they're 10 years old. Like, what do you know when you're 10 years old? But it's worked out pretty well for me. Is it fair to assume that you had some teachers who, uh, who at least didn't discourage you in your curiosity? Oh, yeah. No, I definitely had teachers who encouraged me, but I didn't have any teachers who knew anything about theoretical physics or the Big Bang or anything like that. I mean, just like everybody else, I had good teachers and bad teachers, um, but it wasn't some teacher who inspired me to learn physics. All right. I think we have time for, for one last question. Uh, I wonder what, if you had unlimited funds, where do you, where would you like to see that funding go? Uh, towards uh, popularization or towards a more refined version of the, of, of the CERN um, particle accelerator? If you have an unlimited budget, where will you put the money? If I have an unlimited budget, I would do it all. I mean, that's why that's not a great question, right? I would do a little bit of everything. It, it's a much more interesting question to say you have $10 billion. What will you do with it, right? Um, you know, I think that there's lots of things that are worth doing relatively on the cheap. Um, I mean, popularization pays for itself. Uh, you don't need to put a lot of money into it. I think that it would be nicer for popularizers to have more respect within the community but uh, it doesn't cost a lot of money to write a book or do a YouTube video or whatever, whereas it costs a lot of money to build a particle accelerator to look beyond what we've already seen. I think that's very worth doing because I think that we're not done yet in terms of finding new elementary particles. But also there's a lot of astrophysics that can be done. You know, I guess if there's one thing that I really, really, really want done that I would spend my money on, it is a gravitational wave observatory in space. We've detected gravitational waves here on the Earth. The LIGO Observatory won the Nobel Prize. Uh, three of the people won the Nobel Prize for that. But 
by its very size, it's limited in wavelength to what it can observe in terms of gravitational waves. So there is an experimental proposal called LISA, Laser Interferometric Space Antenna, which would go up there in outer space and look at longer wavelength gravitational waves, which could see one small black hole spiral into a supermassive black hole. And the reason why that's interesting is because it gives us much more delicate, fine-grained information about what space-time is doing around a black hole. And that could give us really important clues about whether or not Einstein was right in all these equations, which is, we always, I always want to say, you don't become a famous scientist by showing that your predecessors were right. You become a famous scientist by showing that they were wrong. So what we would really like to do is discover something that Einstein didn't get right. But so far, it's been impossible to out-Einstein Einstein. <laughs> he was a great one. Uh, thank you, Dr. Carroll. Our thanks to Sean Carroll, author of The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, Space, Time, and Motion. Thank him for joining us today. We encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Dr. Carroll's new book at your local bookstore. If you'd like to watch more Commonwealth Club programs or to support the organization's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Tucker Hyatt for Wonderfest. Thank you and take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 